Welcome back to A View from the Couch. My name is Rich. And I'm Jen. And today we are talking about where the crawdads sing. Do you know what that means, the saying, where the crawdads sing? I've never heard a crawdad sing. I don't know where they would do it. Do you know what it means? I don't. I thought maybe I'd see if you did. <laughs> I I don't think there's a I don't think there's a meaning to it. I think it's meant to be. I think it's meant to be just more of a go as far as you can or you know be as far away from humans as possible and back towards nature maybe if i'm if i'm to understand the themes of this movie in the way just, that they intend so i just looked it up and it says it's referred to in the book as far in the bush where critters are wild still behaving like critters okay so yeah so far enough away from humans that you're kind of back to nature type of a thing you're they're they're not poisoned by humanity yet or something makes sense that, that's kind of a theme with this movie really of, of like how humanity is kind of this poison and like the marsh and kaya the character and the marsh girl and the marsh girl kaya kind of being these like untouched unpoisoned or untainted creatures i guess so yeah. So now I've never read this book. You read the book, right? I did. So I'm going to lean on you a little bit because I need to know. There's some stuff that I have questions about after watching this movie. And I'm going to need to, I'm going to, I'm going to ask some questions. So hopefully. I will do my best to remember. <laughs> okay. All right. So why don't you, I, now I don't have any other experience here. I've never seen any of the other movies by Olivia Newman or written by, by Lucy Albar. Uh, she wrote uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild, and I've, I've never seen that movie. Olivia Newman did make a movie that I want to see called First Match. It's on Netflix. It's a it's a boxing movie. It's got Yaya Abdul-Mateen in it and Coleman Domingo in it. I'm big fans of both of those guys, So, but I do want to see it. I just haven't yet seen it, so I guess that's my background. I have none. <laughs> Why don't you tell everybody? What, who, we, who was in this movie that we watched and who was involved? So you just mentioned who directed and who wrote it, but this was based off of a book by Delia Owens. This movie stars Daisy Edgar Jones as Kaya Clark. We have Taylor John Smith as Tate Walker. We have Harris Dickinson as Chase Andrews and David Straythern as Tom Milton. Also, I want to give a shout out to the cinematographer, Polly Morgan, a British cinematographer who's done a couple of other things, one of which we've seen, Quiet Place Part Two. But I, I really, I enjoyed some of the cinematography in this film. So I just wanted to give her a shout out. This was, this was a very pretty, very pretty, very pretty shot. It was, it was filmed in New Orleans, I believe. And just really beautiful landscaping and scenery it, it was really kind of makes you want to go see it a little bit i'm thinking there's going to be a lot of bugs and lizards and stuff which i would not <laughs> like but it looks pretty on screen well and and wonderfully framed too i'm thinking of the the one the one shot that really sat with me was the the shot where where she's waiting for tate is it on the beach and there's fireworks on one end of the screen on the other end of the screen is her and the sun setting it, it's it's a really well captured shot, and I, I I was very impressed with it. Should we talk about the story? Yeah. Okay. So now, guys, this story kind of flip flops back and forth from present day, and I I use air quotes to say that it's 1969, was it? And the past, quote unquote, the past, because it's all happening in the past, guys. To us, anyway, time relative to the 1950s, I think, through the 1960s. And tells the story of Catherine Clark. They go, she goes by Kaya. That's the name that her family always uh, called her. She's a little girl who grew up in the North Carolina marsh on the coast in the 1950s. And she was part of a, a really poor family. They lived in a shack and the dad was an alcohol of abusive asshole. And one by one, everybody abandons her, <laughs> which... Shit. I mean, I had a couple of times where first the mom leaves. She gets mm -hmm. beat up trying to protect Kaya. And 
the mom leaves. She's had enough. She walks out. She doesn't even respond to the little girl calling for her. She just walks off. Then the sisters leave. Then the brother leaves. Nobody thinks to take this kid with them. Why wouldn't they take her with them? Is there a reason given in the book as to why they just straight up abandoned this little girl? Well, it does. This is this is one of the differences between a book and a movie. Mm-hmm. A book can go in and explore more characters in depth. They can explain a little bit more with motivations and feelings and stuff. And sometimes that doesn't portray quite the same into a movie. Oh yeah. But in the book, it talks about how the mother, when she left, was almost like she not catatonic but kind of like that where she just wasn't thinking straight like she just went into like a survival mode and her brain switched off and she just left because it talks about how she was at her sister's house and it was a long time before she even spoke again and then once she did it was like she realized oh my god I forgot my kids or my kids are still there or whatever, you know, and they they, do talk about it a little bit. They do mention a little bit, but you know, I I feel like it's more mentioned in passing yeah, and not really said that, you know, this was a difficult decision or a difficult thing for the mom because the mom was like mentally ill at this point, you know, she'd been abused. And in the book, it also talks about like, we see this one incident and obviously you can't cover all this in a movie because it'd be you know a four-hour movie there was much more abuse than that one incident i mean it was that was just the thing that pushed it over the edge for for the mother right but the other kids like she wasn't very close with her older sisters and i thought there was an older brother too if i remember right but jody she was close with and that's the one that i always thought why didn't he take her but now he was a kid himself you know so maybe he didn't know if he'd be able to make it on his own and that's why he didn't take her i don't know i'm not sure why nobody else took took her but jody was the one besides the mother that i thought well you know they probably should have at least got her somewhere that maybe somebody could take care of her or something Sure. I think that this is a failing of the movie. And like you said, they can obviously explain a little bit more in the book. But, you know, if you take just a moment to kind of live with that idea that the mom was traumatized to the point where, you know, she wasn't thinking straight, they don't give that enough time, I don't think. And I think that they rush through that to get to the juicy parts, the romance parts, the, you know, the murder mystery part. Right. Which, yeah, I get it. I mean, we're already sitting at just a little over two hours. So many movies right now are two hours and 15 minutes long. This was two hours and six. You can give it an extra five and explore a little bit about why the mom left. I get that there was more than just the one abusive moment. That was pretty obvious, but yeah, they just needed, they needed to give, and maybe there's like something on the cutting room floor floor somewhere, but that should have stayed in this film. I think I just feel like that felt like an important part of it. At one point later on, Kaya is, she mentions in her voiceover that she was searching for any reason in nature that would, that would make a mother abandon her children. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so everybody's wondering about it, including her. So Over time, though, dad kind of softens a little bit and kind of, you know, he's kind of starting to, you know, come out of his shell a little bit, become maybe a little less abusive. Not not giving him a pass at all, by the way. This is just what happens in the movie until he gets a note from the mom. And this is probably the only indication that we have that there was anything being said there there was any communication with the mom and the dad after she left, but he gets a note. We don't know what it says, but he burns it and then leaves like very soon after in between the time the mom left and the time that dad got that letter. We, uh, Kaya tries to go to school. She's encouraged by the local shopkeeper and his wife to you know to go to school 
you know, don't worry, you don't have shoes. It's okay. You go to school. It's your right. You can go to school. And even Tom, who's later going to become her lawyer, the David Strathairn character, character, he encourages her to go to school and says, you know, you don't, you, you have just as much right to be there as anybody else. You go, go to school, but, but they call her the marsh girl and they, you know, they basically ostracize her after dad leaves. She makes money by selling muscles to the shopkeepers. And that's how she, that's how she kind of stays alive by making that money. So. so this part of the movie is also where, again, I understand what the movie's doing. It's trying to cut out time, but mm-hmm. in the book, it does explore how the father really is trying to be better. And, and he does not physically abuse Kaya during this period. And he actually teaches her how to fish and how to drive the boat and how to do these things. And it's, it's a real bonding thing in the book that she feels like maybe she can have a family again, which leads up to how devastating it is when her father leaves again. In the movie, I don't think you feel the devastation of another person leaving when the father leaves because you're like, oh, he's an asshole anyway. So he's just leaving. But right. in the book, she's she's a little kid. She's seven years old, eight years old, something like that. Yeah. Building a relationship with her father. It's, you know, they're eating meals together. He's teaching her things. And then he leaves. Mm. And it's just never another devastating blow to her. So again, like I said, I, I think in the book, it's so much better because you just can't get that across on the screen in a timely manner, I don't think. Right, right. I think that would have given some more of the pretty language in this film, a little bit more of an oomph, because there's there's a point where she, after the dad leaves, she says in voiceover that I didn't really, I wasn't really worried that my dad was gone. It was just that another person had left me and it was a pain that was so vast that it echoed. And I thought, okay, I get that, but why? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, all we've seen is him being abusive and then sort of coming out of a shell a little bit. And then she, then he's gone. So at that point, she hasn't lost much of anything except for an abusive right. prick of a father. But the way you're describing it makes a whole lot more sense for this pain to echo. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. That, that's, that is one of my drawbacks. Now, I'm, I'm going to go back. Book is always better than the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but this book definitely gives you more of these relationships and it feels harder. There's more hurt to it when these people leave because it, it is like a loss. It's a little girl losing her family. Mm-hmm. And I it just, it's too bad they couldn't get it across on the screen because I do think it's an impactful thing happening that does, it does point to why things happen the way they do later down the road. Gotcha. Okay. Now, she eventually stumbles across a young man named Tate, Tate Walker, who, well, she gets lost when she's out in the boat at one day. I think the day that her dad leaves, right? She goes out on the boat and she's puttering around out there. And yeah, I think it's around that back. time. Yeah. Yeah. Like she, she can't find her way back. Like her brother, I guess, was the one that taught her how to drive the boat in the voiceover. And he, would never, he never told her how to get back to where back to land without him but tate helps her get back and he kind of befriends her and he starts visiting her and into their teenage years he kind of teaches her to read and write and count he brings books to her and they both are really interested in the nature of the marsh which i think is really interesting because this is this is a book that is written this is the first time author delia owens first time fiction author i should say but she is a she's a zoologist and a conservationist. She's written other books like the memoir Cry of the Kalahari, Eye of the Elephant, Secrets of the Savannah, stuff like that. So she's written a lot of nature type books, these types of books that Kaya will eventually write and and illustrate. So I, I, I thought that was interesting that, you know, you find a little bit of the author in this book. You find a little bit of an author in just about any book, but this is kind of a it's kind of a big chunk to to put of yourself in there which i i appreciated it i mean i mean you don't often get characters that are like this where they have you know they've got they always have something interesting that they do but it's never like 
conservationist slash you know artist for you know for a, for a wildlife book i mean that's that's the kind of cool stuff that like you know you'd you see in movies that people are like oh you can make you know money doing this but you know not not by much so right but they eventually begin a romantic relationship but and tate is going to college that's the other thing is tate's going to college his dad doesn't want him getting involved with kaya because the implication when the dad with the this is what i got off of this when the dad says to him you know sometimes you make mistakes and those mistakes can follow you and my the the, the implication there is that the dad could have been could have done something other than being a shrimper but he got his he got Tate's mom pregnant with Tate and he doesn't want that same fate for Tate. Can I just say I really <laughs> I really I really hate that name Tate. Anybody out there that's listening whose name is Tate, I don't hate you, I hate your name. It's a it's a goofy ass name. Also not a name that anybody in the 1940s would have been named. At least not not popular not named. popular names and people that name was around in the 1940s it, 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 it was around wasn't popular it was around now the odds of finding both a tate and a chase in the backwaters of south of north carolina in the 1940s way 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 the freak off there man this is this is way out there there's not, there's no way there's a tate and a chase in the same town at the same time in 19 late 1940s early 1950s podunk north carolina just not there's just not <laughs> i'm sorry so, there's not okay so with tate leaving yeah i do think that the movie did a good job of showing how painful this was for kaya it that i think they were able to get across the screen just mm-hmm. fine you know this is somebody who was very important to her. i mean he gave her knowledge or the ability to learn mm-hmm. and read and she became someone who did read a lot. She read all sorts of stuff in the book. So she was, she was educated, you know? I mean, it was reading out of books, educated and going out to the swamp and being educated. But then this was like her one and only friend too, you know? I mean, this is an important person to her. And then to, for him to fail to come back. I mean, this is, this is a huge, huge thing for her. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely informs the character going forward. This is even more so than mom leaving or dad leaving, you know? Right. This is somebody that she sought out, somebody that she decided to have this relationship with, not somebody that no fate would have her, you know, fall in with, you know, in the, in the form of a family that would eventually abandon her. This is somebody that she chose and then they left. Yeah. Cause she did because she at first was running off with him too. Like, so her Mm -hmm. instinct is to flee and hide, right? Run and hide. That is her instinct. And he, he built up her trust by giving her gifts, like those feathers and stuff. Right. And she chose to let him in. And, and then he just really blew that. Yeah. (laughs) He betrayed that. Even if he did, I mean, his reason for not coming back was that, he needed to be able to move on. He didn't think she'd ever leave the marsh, but he should have gone and talked to her about that, you know, and, and actually had a conversation instead of just leaving. Sure. Absolutely. Now this, I think the way that they portray this is my favorite cinematic moment in the movie is that you know, this, this bit where, you know, you've got her on the one side of the screen, the fireworks going off on the other side of the screen and it all just, as the camera angle changes, the sunset is getting lower and lower and lower. And then eventually the fireworks and then eventually her sleeping and then eventually her waking and, you know, anguish. I just, I really loved the way that this was shot and framed in certain scenarios. And this is one of those scenarios. This is one of those moments that I, that stood out to me. So after Tate leaves, she continues to, work on her art skills. She continues to learn about the biology of the marsh. And before now, before Tate left, he gave her a list of places to send her work, send her art publishers that she could maybe, you know, see if she she could get herself published. And she finds that and she ends up sending stuff out to these folks. So when her first book gets published, her older brother, Jody notices it and comes back to the marsh. 
and tells her that the mom wanted to find her and reunite with the other kids, but then she got leukemia and she died. Now, this is where it started to really grate on me with this movie. Everything in this film is a great tragedy. It's not like little tragedies. It's not like little stuff like, oh, mom left. It's not that mom left. It's mom left. She realized what she did wrong and she died of leukemia. So there is no resolution there. It's, you know, it's dad went to try and be better. And then he left. It's Tate. She had this great relationship that she let this dude in. And then he left. It was all this like, it's just, there's no little trauma in this movie. Every trauma in this movie is huge and heaping and weighing on the back of this movie. And that's, I think to me that, that felt a little pulpy, you know, like maybe a little too, I, that didn't bother me. I felt I liked the fact that the mom had passed because it gave, not that I wanted the mom to die, but it gave a reason to why mom didn't come back. You know, plus we heard that the father did respond to her and said, if you come back, I'm going to beat the children. So the mom right. would have been scared to come back. And then even if she would have wanted to try again at some point, she had passed. And so it almost, it almost gives the mom a pass, you know, that it's, it's one thing that she can maybe let go, you know, mom's not coming back now. She, she, she's, she's died. Hmm. I, hmm. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, that's just to sweep it all under the rug there then, right? Like there is nothing left for her to worry about there anymore. They're, they're basically just narrowing it down to, she just has to worry about Chase and Tate and that's it. I, I don't think it's nothing for her to worry about. I mean, that's a deep-seated trauma. Your your mother leaving you as a child in an not, you know abusive home. That, uh, that I'm not talking about. That'll never go away. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about mom dying. Mom dying, she doesn't have to worry about whether or not mom's ever going to come back now. That's it. Right. Now, we're, now we're whittling away at like all these things that she has to worry about. Now all she really has to worry about is the two guys that are vying for her heart. All right. Okay. I don't know. Also, I have a quick qualm here. She is really well-groomed for a swamp girl. Like, what's she brushing her teeth with? It's pretty well established. She doesn't have electricity or running water out there. What's she brushing she her does teeth have, with? She does have water. She's got that pump She's water. got a pump. She's never read it. She doesn't have running water. She has a pump. Right. So that so she does have water. And again, in the movie, it doesn't. It goes a little bit into it. But Jumpin' and his wife, Mabel... And in the book, there's a grocery store clerk, but in the movie, the grocery store clerk and Mabel's characters have been combined into, you know, Mabel. But those three people in the book really help her out without her always knowing. And and we don't necessarily see it because the story is being told for the most part from Kaya's perspective. Right, sure. But, you know, Jumpin has her bring mussels in and then she tries frying these gross fish. And so he buys those, even though he doesn't sell them, but he does it as trade, but he's basically, they're getting clothes. They're getting supplies from their local church. He's giving her deals on merchandise out of his place. The grocery store clerk, she was get letting her get stuff that was, you know, she was still paying for it, but what she maybe wasn't paying the full price for it. And so she was being helped out by other people in the community to get the necessary items to, you know, not thrive necessarily, but at least survive. So she had like the necessities she needed while not over a lot of us necessities, she still struggled, you know, but she, she right. did have food. She did have clothes and shoes. She had hairbrush. She, she had that stuff. So, okay. Interesting. Yeah. It's interesting that they left that out. I, I guess I suppose it's not essential. You have to assume that she must find a way to brush her teeth, find a way to clean her fingernails, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But like never had any dirt under her fingernails. Never for a girl who goes digging around in the dirt all the time to like find muscles and find like, you know, well, she's always out in nature. I can't go mm -hmm. out in the yard and mow the lawn without getting my fingers dirty. So I, I agree with you to a certain aspect because I would think she, maybe her hair wouldn't always look perfectly brushed and maybe she right. would have some mud on her feet and shins or something. Yeah. 
that would seem more believable to me because she's always barefoot and you, you get mud on you. I, I, I agree with you to a certain point, but I do know that there's people helping her, you know, with like the teeth thing and stuff like that. Gotcha. Okay. Fair enough. Now by 1965, Kaya is 19 years old and she starts a relationship with Chase Andrews, who is the town quarterback, I guess, for the town, for the town high school football team. But that's not, is that ever said in the movie? I don't know if it's said in the movie, but he's Mr. Popular in town. Yeah. Like he's, yeah. he's the star quarterback on the, the football team. And, you know, people, everybody loves him. Mr. Perfect, right? Yeah. So he, he and Kaya have like a relationship, a little bit of a tryst, and they go away to somewhere, Greenville, Asheville, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. And somewhere in North Carolina, he has to do something for his dad's auto parts store and he's going to be with her overnight. So he takes her with him and they have sex. She loses her virginity to him and he proposes marriage, but then she runs into him on the street and there's another girl and she's already got a ring on her finger and she introduces herself as Chase's fiance. Dun, dun, dun. Surprise. The jock was using her the whole time. Right. A little stereotypical, but there's a lot of stereotypes in this movie. You know, there are. I I cannot even explain how much I hate this, hate this person. I mean, he's just, he is that popular douchey dirt bag that I think almost everybody had one of in high school. Hmm. And he was was terrible in the books to her. And they did, I think a pretty good job of portraying that on the screen. Oh, they did. Um, I didn't like him from the start. Yeah. Also his name is chase. And again, how how many people (laughs) are named chase in 1950s or 1960s rural South Carolina? Sorry. Yeah. It's not. Uh, But Kaya was smitten. I mean, somebody's paying attention to her. She's not alone. Cause at this point she's not necessarily looking for deep, meaning relationships she just doesn't she's tired of being alone she mm-hmm. just doesn't want to be alone anymore i didn't get the feeling that she like okay daisy edgar jones did a really good job in this movie for the most part but the bit with chase like her relationship with chase she looked scared the whole time to me like I the thought whole so too. time i thought so too I, I thought they didn't portray it quite the same because you know, in the book, there's a time where she's very smitten with him and he seems to be with her. Now you kind of always know that something else is, you know, probably going on. Right. But yeah, he, she just, she doesn't seem all that in, into him more like she's just tolerating being there with him, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, when they first get together, he's like, he's like trying to like, go out on a date with her and he like try he moves too fast and she doesn't like that so she gives him a second chance and he brings her up to the top of the fire tower where he's going to be found dead later right he -hmm. brings her up to the top of the fire tower and the worst cgi shot in the whole damn movie is them (laughs) up against the marshland i was like whoa whole i actually think i actually wrote in my notes holy cgi or something like that so like he's doing all these all the right things, but you get this feeling that there's just something not right about him from the get-go. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what we were trying. I think that's what we're supposed to infer from Daisy Edgar Jones's performance. But I really feel like this is kind of now I really liked her in Fresh. I really liked her in almost all of this movie as well. But I think that her work with the uh, the guy that's playing Chase just sent the wrong message i think to me yeah well and i don't know if it's her work but i think it's the shortened version of the relationship you know how they met that first picnic thing that happened in the book where he's trying to go too fast and she's like no 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 i'm not Mm -hmm. i don't want to do that but then he does court her after that he's very Mm -hmm. kind to her he's nice to her and you know they they hang out a lot and then, it, and then at that hotel, which happens much later in the relationship, mm-hmm. he, they do sleep together. That is their first time. And it is an awful experience. So it, they, they did portray that, I think, on the screen, mm-hmm. the way it was written in the book. I just think we're missing that 
nice portion of the relationship, you know, or the courting or something, him courting her type of thing that she sees. Right. Yeah. Like there has to be some reason that she would continue doing anything with this guy. Right. And we don't ever get yeah. that in the, in the movie. It would be nice to see a little bit more of what, what she sees in him. Yeah. And There's I also feel like they, while they did show us the shell necklace, Mm-hmm. that is like a huge thing in the book that yeah. whole shell necklace and it does seem very important to chase because many years later he's still wearing it and it said that he never takes it off he always mm-hmm. wears it and so while they do mention some of that it's kind of off to the side mentioning again and yeah. they do bring it up in the trial but i thought you know this was a much bigger deal in the book now maybe again they had to shorten it down just to try and keep this at a two hour movie. But yeah. that just always made me think that maybe Chase does care for Kaya in his weird way. And he just doesn't, he's just a terrible human being, you know, that, that he would wear that still <laughs> right. after yeah. all those years after they've ended their relationship and all that stuff. But yeah, anyways. Well, okay. So he does continue to pursue Kaya after she breaks up with him when she finds out that he's already engaged. And then he attacks her and tries to rape her on the beach. But she fends him off. She finds a rock and smashes him on the side of the head and then shouts that if he tries to, if he comes in here again, she's going to kill him. And then later, this is how the movie opens. Later, we find that Chase is actually dead at the bottom of the fire tower that they were standing in uh, earlier in the movie in the, in the horrible CGI shot. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now there's no tracks around his body there's no fingerprints found on the tower the shell necklace that you mentioned is gone and it, it was it is mentioned later in the trial that he was wearing that shell necklace the night of his death the evening of his death they go after and find kaya the cops go after and find Kaya. They charge her with murder and the townspeople believing that she is just the swamp girl believed that she did it. But she has an alibi. She was in Greenville meeting with her book publisher, but the police still have this speculation that like, like somehow she snuck back to Greenville or excuse me, struck back, snuck back from Greenville to Barkley Cove on a quick, super quick round trip bus trip, bus trip to find chase. And this is how the lawyer, so David Strathairn's lawyer character describes it, that she would have without being recognized, taken a bus back to Barkley Cove, found Chase in the middle of the night, lured him to the fire thing, knocked him off of the fire thing, killed him, taken the necklace, wiped up all the fingerprints, and then left and went back and then went to a breakfast in the morning with her publisher again. But, and so the, and of course the jury finds, hey, that must, that, that can't possibly be true. We, she has an alibi, so they let her off. And then Tate and Kaya reconcile and they never actually marry. Right. Am I, am I understanding that? Like she says we're already technically married by nature, so we don't have to get married per se. And, and so they don't get married. They just live together for the rest of their lives. And then we see them in, so now we've seen them in their, in their infancy like when they were three, four, five, six years old, we saw them in their teenage years, saw them in their twenties. And now we're seeing them (laughs) as like 70 year old people, Tate and Kaya living together. She's make, she's written more books. He's still working as a, as a naturalist or something like that. I think he's a conservationist or something with the university. He mentions that early on or earlier in the movie that he's now working at the lab outside of town. And then she dies. She dies. And did you find that a little weird? Like the way she died? Is that how she dies in the book? 
I think so. I think she had like a heart attack or something like that. Is that what it was? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think she did. Because she goes out for a boat ride and she sees her mom and then she dies. So I didn't know if we were supposed to supposed to take from that that she gets scared by a ghost and dies. That's not what this is about? No. Okay, just making sure. No, that was just her... No, I know. Envisioning I'm visioning mom, you know, and going home to bossy mom. Whatever. No, no, I, I know. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just teasing. I, it's just, okay. I'm just making okay. a joke out of it. <laughs> I was like, like, wait, no, I did not get that. <laughs> <laughs> Tate finds her in the boat. And then eventually he's like cleaning out the, the, the house because she's dead. And so he's boxing up all of her stuff and he finds a diary. And in the diary, is the shell from the necklace that she had given Tate. So she basically exactly what they said, exactly what the cops said happened, happened. She went to Greenville, but she took a bus back, found Tate in the middle of the night, lured him to the fire tower, brought him up the fire tower, pushed him off the fire tower, wiped off all the fingerprints, stole the shell necklace and made off back to Greenville to meet with her book publisher again. That has to be, that has to be one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Like, it's not that she got away with it. That's not what, that's not what's so funny. It's the exact thing that they said happened, happened. Like, how does that work? It had to have, because otherwise (laughs) she didn't, she didn't drive. So she had to have taken the bus back and forth. Now, I wrote one of my notes here early on. Okay, I know who killed Chase. It was Kaya. And I said, we're going to get, I I thought we were going to get her confession at the end of the movie. And here's how I thought it was going to go. I thought she was going to give a deathbed confession to Tate. But this movie may be pulpy, but it's not that pulpy. So kudos to them for not going that bad, I guess. Is this how the book ends? Yeah, pretty much. We're like, we find out that, oh yeah, she did take the bus back for back and forth from Greenville, lured him in the middle of the night, pushed him out of the fire thing, the thick thing, all that stuff. I feel like the book did a better job of kind of keeping the mystery there because they had some misdirects going on where for a while there, you thought it might've been Tate for a while. You thought it might've really been an accident. Um, there was even some moments where you thought maybe it was Jumpin' that did it. Jumpin'? Kaya, because Jumpin' was pissed when, really? when Chase put his hands on Kaya. And then, you, you know, obviously Kaya too. But in the movie, they show times where Kaya's covering up her footprints and stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, they showed that twice in the movie. And I'm like, why are they showing this? You're kind of just giving this away here. Yeah, you know? they piece that thing together. I mean, it's so obvious. If you're watching the movie and you're paying any part of attention, you will see what they're doing and exactly how they're doing it. Like they show how she covers up her footprints in the mud, not just yeah. any footprints, footprints in the mud that they were yeah. talking about. How are you going to cover up footprints in the mud? Oh yeah, there you go. Just like she did. Right. And yeah. and that was established, I think, before, if I remember right, like Jody would show her how to hide and stuff when they were kids. Ah, um, okay. So that was, that was stuff she had known for a long time. And then she'd been hiding, not just from chase or tate at some point i mean she had child services after her she had and her um, dad she had well her dad but after her dad left it was child services and i think another maybe a couple different child services places that would come out there looking for her to to take her to a home but she was always hiding you know yeah yeah she's good at hiding I like it better that she figured this out on her own. I don't think she needed Jody to be the one to show her how to do this. I like that she's resourceful enough to know how to like cover her footprints and figure this all out for herself. I think it may, I think it makes her a stronger character than mm-hmm. this whole, which I think honestly, well, I think this whole murder itself was definitely her. I mean, that would have taken quite a bit <laughs> of planning. Now they do show her going in and copying down the bus schedule at Jumpin's. And that's where yeah. she came up with the whole timing of everything. The only thing we really don't know is 
how did she get Chase up there? But now Chase did mention he liked going up there a lot. So maybe she knew he goes up there on that evening every night or something. You know, who knows? <laughs> you just don't know. But I just they, don't get it. I don't get how he got They don't up there. really tell us in the book or in the movie how that happens. But everything yeah. had to have happened just right in order for it to get in that one hour time span, I guess. So. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. Also, I wanted to talk about the uh, the now this is all so much of this is told in flashback with the with the framing of a legal case, her murder trial. And by the end of this, we get these very, very rote, very trite version of the movie lawyer saying, now, the defense is going to throw a lot of fancy words at you, but what you really need to know is right over here is a person. I was like, wait, does everybody have to say this? Is that how like movie lawyers have to act? Because if you even, if you even go back 30 years and go watch A Few Good Men, because there's a, there is a scene in A Few Good Men where Kevin Bacon's character says, prosecution is going to try and dazzle you with fancy words like code red and such and such and i'm like what is it with movie lawyers why do they have to talk like that <laughs> do they ever do that in real life i've only ever been to one trial in my whole life and i've never heard a lawyer talk like that i've never been to a trial so i don't know the answer <laughs> to that what up with that <laughs> do you have any other notes that you want to throw in here or anything you want to talk about specifically i just kind of want to go back over the book and movie difference a little bit. Yeah, please. That'd be great. They did a really good job, I think, adapting the story and keeping it true to the book. There are some things that are different, but for the most part, it's on. So if if somebody's a fan of the book, I think they would be happy with this adaptation to the movie. The big thing that I don't like is the downplaying of her relationships. The, the importance and the character building of the, uh, the relationships that she had with Jody and Jumpin and even Tate and Chase, they're just so downplayed in the movie and you get so much more in the book. And again, I understand why, because otherwise you'd have just a massively long movie, but I feel like you don't necessarily understand what Kaya is going through all the time. I think you kind of get a little bit of it, but you don't really get the full impact of it. That's the big thing is I don't think you get the point of her fear and her loneliness. I mean, the fear when she was a child of how she was going to survive and how does she take care of herself? She's, you know, seven years old for God's sake. Yeah. Um, there's a moment in the book where she's playing outside and she jumps and lands on a rusty nail Ew. and, you know, has to care for that and clean that, and, you know, trying to track, you know, heard somebody talking about red streaks or something like that. So she's like tracking. This. So, I mean, there, there's fear in there, but then as she gets older, the loneliness, I don't think with that comes across in the movie. I, again, I think the book kept the mystery better. I felt it kept you okay, who was it a little bit more? Because there's even a point after the trial where like some boats come up to Tate and are handing him paperwork and you're like, oh my gosh, what is this? Well, it didn't happen to be (laughs) police or anything, but you know what I mean? It was other stuff happening. But for the most part, I thought it did pretty good. Okay, okay. I thought it was quite interesting that, that Elder Tate was played by the guy who played Mr. Gorpley in Perfect Strangers. (laughs) <laughs> do you remember mr gorpley no do you remember perfect strangers though right with balky oh yeah 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 he was kind of the, he was kind of like the uh, balky gets a job in in the mailroom at a at the chicago chronicle and and mr gorpley is balky's boss he's just kind of this goofy character who doesn't he's always making stupid looks at balky because balky's being balky and this was the guy this was sam gorpley Okay. Or Mr. Ripley. Yeah. So I found that interesting. Okay. <laughs> Do you have cool. any, any trivia or anything like that? The only trivia I have is about the book. The okay. novel was released in 2018 and was a New York Times bestseller in 2019 and 2020. 
And by 2022, the book has sold over 12 million copies. I could see why. This is, seems like the kind of fluffy summer, summer potboiler type move, type book that would be on like book club lists and that's fine. Yeah, I think so. And it's an easy read. I read mm-hmm. it in a day and a half. Okay. It, it, it's an easy read. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Any final thoughts? Nope. I think I covered everything. Okay. Sounds good. So then keep rent or erase Jennifer. This is in my rent column. I enjoyed the movie. I do think it's worth seeing, but it's not one I think I would go back to many times. I'll probably watch it again a few times down the road, probably not within a year or something, just because I've seen it. I've read the book. It's not something I'm going to come back to a lot. So I'm going to put rent, but I would keep the book, keep the book, rent the movie. Interesting. Okay. All right. I am, man, I had to balance this one because I really, my initial thought was I have to erase this movie. I have to erase this movie because there's better versions of this out there. There's better movies with these types of themes, with this type of, you know, courtroom drama set against, uh, you know, poor Southern background. There are better movies like this out there. And I think the only thing that saves it for me, there's two things I think that save us for me and put it in a rent category. Daisy Edgar Jones's performance, I think was really, really good in just about every part, except for the bits with chase. She looked a little bit lost in that relationship. She looked a little bit, she looked like she didn't want to be in that relationship. It looked like that entire relationship was abuse rather than, they're supposed to be something there. And I think the only other thing that really saved this movie for me was the cinematography. I think there are shots in this movie that looked fantastic. I think that it was, I think that it, it looks really good in certain spots, especially the, the natural, the natural world and the way they shot it. It doesn't look quite like a nature documentary, but it could pass for one, but it reminds me of, a Nicholas Sparks movie. And I've never liked any Nicholas Sparks movie. There's not a single one that I liked. And even, even the one that guys were supposed to like, if I could be, you know, that guy, which was, I think, was it the boy or something like that? He had some book. It was about a guy like raising his kid or something like that. And even that one, I was just like, Oh God, this is just too saccharine and too weird and too like too cookie cutter, you know, that is not your cup of tea. It's not real. It really isn't. You know, I mean, I can't, I just, yeah, I can't just, I just can't deal with that. It's not my type of movie. And it's not that I don't like romantic comedies. I love romantic comedies. A good romantic comedies. When Harry met Sally is a good one. Sleepless in Seattle is a good one. Maybe it's just Nora Ephron. I'll have to look into that. Maybe it's just Nora Ephron's writing that I like. Anyway, I'm going to eke this over just slightly into the rent category instead of erase. But guys, it is razor's edge thin that Daisy Edgar Jones and the cinematography saves this movie for me. All right. So before we talk about what's next week, I just want to go over a public service announcement. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) When you go to the movie theater, please don't go on a first date and decide you're going to chit chat through the whole damn movie. Yeah. It's so rude. It is so rude. People are trying to watch the movie and you're sitting over there chit chatting and giggling. It's, it's ridiculous. For real. Shut the fuck up. If you're in a movie theater, shut up. I shushed them and gave them the stare down because I, I, I don't normally do that because I just, (laughs) I'm not that person, but I got to the point where I'm like, I can't even focus on what's happening in the movie Yeah, because I mean, we were what, five, six minutes in, maybe even 10 minutes and they had not shut up. They hadn't stopped talking the whole time. And it wasn't like they were whispering. No, I mean, they were whispering a little bit, but then every once in a while would, you know, like as the movie would get louder, they would get louder. I call it stage whispering. Well, it's what it is called stage whispering, but it's, it's what it sounded like to me. It's this whole thing right here where you're pretending to whisper, but you're not actually whispering, you yeah, know, that whole exactly. thing. So like, 
Yeah, I think, and the one, the dude, the guy on this little meat cute or whatever the fuck it was, this dude was like defending his goddamn dissertation or something. Like, I swear to God, he never shut up. He just talked constantly. Yeah, from the point, point we sat down, we were there about 10 minutes before the movie started. And in to, into, t- so through the 10 minutes, through the trailers, and then 10 minutes into the movie. And then I was finally like, shh. Okay. <laughs> like, I've just had enough. Just be quiet. A half an hour. <laughs> Guys, come on. Don't bring your, don't bring your little babies to horror movies. Have your meat cute somewhere else shut up in a movie theater people are paying tickets to watch a movie not to listen to you guys have your first date shut up if you want to talk on a date don't go to a movie go to a restaurant go to a bar god go to a bar (laughs) you know what go to a rest stop on the interstate i don't give a shit just not in a movie theater okay i don't care where you do it just not in a movie theater people are we didn't pay to listen to your goddamn conversation Okay, rant over. So next week, we are going to cover Nope. Yeah, I say yep. That's what I say. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm excited for this. I I think I'm a Jordan Peele fan. I've I've liked the movies he's been coming out with. They're interesting. They're creative. They're unique. I this this dude is he's he's got some talent. Yeah, definitely. I would I would say so far so good in everything for everything that he's put out so far. And I have been looking forward to this one since it was announced. Uh, this has turned into a situation like for me, like it, it was it's like a 24. OK, I'm in Steven Spielberg. OK, I'm in. Now it's Jordan Peele. Yep, I'm here. Yeah. Jordan Peele movie. It's an instant ass in the seat for me. Yeah, I'm there. We will see you next week for that right here on the couch. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening to A View from the Couch. We value your feedback. Please consider leaving us a review on Podbean, iTunes, or your preferred podcast listening app. You can reach us on Facebook by searching at A View from the Couch, on Twitter at View underscore Couch, or by emailing us at A View from the Couch at Yahoo.com. Thanks again for listening. Bye. See ya.